Hey everybody and welcome to an episode of Digging Deeper, a podcast of the Glendale Road Church of Christ. I'm Stephen Hunter, the preacher of the Glendale Road Church of Christ, and I welcome you. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been reviewing scripture and early church history, and we've been looking at where things began to change from what they practiced in the New Testament to, well, where things are today. I want to read to you a passage to begin with. 1 Peter 3, beginning verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times didn't obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which prefigured this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If I had a room full of people and asked who all's been baptized, a lot of hands would go up. Then, if I asked how were you baptized, I might get an array of answers. Some might say I was sprinkled when an infant. Others might say they did it as an outward sign of an inward grace. But does the Bible instruct us in these ways? When the Bible was translated into English, the term from Greek wasn't translated, but transliterated. The word baptism and its cognates mean immerse, dip, or plunge. And even without a knowledge of Greek, if you read Romans 6.4 and Colossians 2.12, baptism is described as a burial. Even when John and Jesus' disciples were baptizing, they did so in the Jordan River and in another location with much water, according to John 3.23. Now, verse 21 of 1 Peter 3 is often disputed because it says that baptism saves. Reformed theology stresses faith, and I believe that definition, their definition, is narrowly defined as mental assent, and that downplays the role of baptism in God's plan. So when you read the previous verse, there were eight souls saved through water. So Peter is citing the flood. How were Noah and his family saved through water? It destroyed everything and everyone. How did it save him? They were saved because God told Noah to build an ark. That vessel wasn't a work whereby Noah and his family earned salvation. The ark was a physical type for the later antitype, baptism. Now, verses 18 through 22 of 1 Peter 3 often combine as a thought. Commentaries treat them this way, but in verse 18, Jesus' crucifixion is cited. Yet, though he physically died, he was made alive in the Spirit. Baptism only saves because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Verse 21. So, as Noah obediently built the ark, he only followed the commandment God gave him that would result in his salvation. When we are baptized by faith in Jesus, we board a spiritual ark. But baptism would be meaningless without Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. This is what gives it meaning. Jesus. Now there are a few facts about baptism. We tend to separate faith and baptism as if they're two totally different things. But they're really not. Being baptized is an act of faith. 
when a person is baptized, I want you to notice in Colossians 2 verse 12, when a person is baptized, they have faith in the working of God. So Paul in Colossians 2 is comparing baptism to circumcision. We all know that circumcision made one a member of the old covenant. But in Colossians 2.12, when you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. So it's not me who's doing a work to earn salvation, but it's me trusting the Lord and him working through baptism through my faith. Mark 16.16 16. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who doesn't believe will be condemned. You can also look at Acts 16, verses 31 through 33. They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were at his house. At the same hour of the night he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. So we continue going through passages. Acts 2.38 Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we see a removal of sins there and in Acts 22 verse 16. And why do you delay? Rise and be baptized having your sins washed away, calling on his name. So this act of faith, baptism, grants us forgiveness of sins. And according to 1 Corinthians 12.13, it makes us a part of the body of Christ. This is where the Holy Spirit operates. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So we receive forgiveness of sins through this act of faith. We're made a part of the body of Christ during this act of faith. Um, Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 6 gives us two points. In verses 3 through 4 we reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And in verse 6 our sinful person is crucified. So we could probably agree or disagree about why one should do it and what it means. But rather than muddying the waters, here's the simple point. Regardless of what you believe about it or what I believe about it, it is commanded. And so the important question is, have I done it? That's what we really should be discussing. So, anyway, when did things begin to change? Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, you know, my master's is in uh, theological studies, and my Ph.D. is in humanities. One of my areas of, of I don't want to say expertise because I'm not an expert, but one area in which I'm uh, rather well-versed is early Christianity, and that's usually classified as the first three centuries. So there are some writings that are not, uh, that are not inspired, but that are Christian literature, and they have a lot to say about baptism. I've mentioned to you in the previous weeks a, a work called Didache. Um, it was written somewhere between 
the year 50 and 60 AD. It was written in Syria where there, there may have been places where water was scarce. So it says, if you have neither running water or cold water, then pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So you see the pouring of water over the head, but that's only in the event of an absence of water. <clears throat> now, let me tell you this. You know, we're very privileged in the United States, and we would think, well, where would you live where there's not a good source of water for someone to be baptized? I'll, here's a story. Last year, my daughter and her fiancé, uh, their unit was de deployed to Kosovo. My future son-in-law, you know, came to faith in Christ and wanted to be baptized. So they went to the chaplain, and the chaplain offered, uh, offered, I guess you say, holy water to sprinkle him with. And my daughter said, we don't do that. So it was a few weeks. They had a, a little pond nearby, but the pond was contaminated, so you couldn't get in that. There were no tubs. There were only showers, and there wasn't any vat of water that you could have filled so that he could be immersed. So a few weeks went by and they had some time of leave and so they went to northern Macedonia where there was a, a hotel with a pool and my future son-in-law was immersed. So there are places where water is scarce and according to this writing in the first century, when water was scarce, pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's the earliest mention of a form of baptism other than immersion. <clears throat> but I want you to notice it is in the case of an exception. That's not the rule. Well, we get into the second century, about 110 AD. Ignatius, you may remember me mentioning him from a, a couple of weeks ago, where he was the one who changed the structure of local church leadership from elders and deacons to bishop elders and deacons. He wrote this, it's not lawful without the bishop to baptize. Now at that time a change in leadership structure appeared due to the challenges they faced. Maybe it was to ensure that things were done properly, so the authority was placed in the hands of a single man wherever he presided. Now we have another uh, from the late second century, Irenaeus. He wrote, Christ came to save through means of himself all who through him are born again unto God, infants, children, and boys, and youths, and old men. This is the earliest mention of infants and children, but he's not speaking about baptism per se. As a matter of fact, just a couple decades later, there was an African theologian called Tertullian, and he actually advocated for the delay of baptism. Here's what he wrote. And so, according to the circumstances and disposition, and even age of each individual, the delay of baptism is preferable, principally, however, in the case of little children. The Lord does indeed say, Forbid them not to come unto me. Let them come, then, while they are growing up. Let them come while they are learning. While they are learning whither to come. Let them become Christians when they have become able to know Christ. Why does the innocent period of life hasten to remission of sins. Now, so we have different points of view. 
Uh, one of the reasons that Baptists are called Baptists is because they believe in full immersion, unlike their predecessors. And we, in Churches of Christ, we practice full immersion as well. But the first century writing of Didache allowed for a pouring over the head in an extreme circumstance. Then you have the mention of baptism only being valid when the bishop does it. But then you get a, another hundred years away and you have a theologian saying, you know, why does the innocent period hasten to the remission of sins, you know? So he was favorable of putting it off when they were older and more knowledgeable. But by the time you get to the third century, you read another uh, prominent writer by the name of Cyprian of Carthage. He says, but if even the chief of sinners who have been exceedingly guilty before God receive the forgiveness of sins on coming to the faith, and no one is precluded from baptism and from grace, how less should the child be kept back, which as it is but just born cannot have sinned, but has only brought with it by its descent from Adam the infection of the old death, and which may the more easily obtain the remission of sins, because the sins which are forgiven it are not its own but those of another. Cyprian was one who, throughout his various writings, clearly advocated for infant baptism. And the very first deathbed baptism of pouring that we read occurs in A.D. 251. Novation received baptism in the bed where he lay by pouring. So something that we indeed see is the reading back into Scripture practices from the times. Also, there's there wasn't unanimity about it until after Augustine formulated his original sin doctrine in, somewhere between AD 386 and 430. So, when you look at all the variations that were practiced throughout early church history, the simple thing that we who are Bible-believing Christians advocate is, let's just go back to the Bible. Let's do what they did so that we know we get what they got. Because after all, as the Hebrew author said, and having been perfected, he, Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So that's where it is. It's all about having faith in Jesus. It's all about obeying him. In the New Testament, baptism was a burial. It was always performed on consenting adults who demonstrated that they had faith in Jesus. There's no mention of sprinkling in the New Testament. And there is a word that you can translate as sprinkling, and it appears in the letter of, to the Hebrews, but it's about the sprinkling of the blood of bulls and goats. But no sprinkling is advocated as a substitute for immersion, nor is it ever witnessed in the New Testament that it was performed on infants. That's because of later doctrinal, I don't want to say developments, but development in the sense that people came to conclusions outside of what Scripture teaches. The very first occasion where uh, baptism was seen as not essential was, I believe, in the 16th century by Oryx Vingli. So he was the first one to say that, and I, I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but he was the first one to say 
uh, it, it, at a roundabout way that it isn't as necessary as what it's been made out to be all these centuries. But from the first century up until that time, the one thing I can tell you is that there is a unified teaching that baptism was for the forgiveness of sins and that it was necessary. Now, it may have taken different forms, such as sprinkling or pouring. It may have been performed on infants. But there's a pretty good, uh, what would you say, there's a pretty good attestation to this singular belief that baptism does remove sins. So it was only up until Ulrich Zwingli that that view began to change. So we've done a walk through the New Testament. We've done a walk through church history. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, feel free to contact us. If you're one who's never been baptized or demonstrated your faith in Jesus, please contact us. I'd love to talk with you more about it. And if you're ready to make that decision, definitely, I definitely want to help you make that decision. Hope you're doing well. God bless you, and we'll see you next time.